Hello, and welcome to the Maximu Theater and Performance Podcast. Today we'll be talking about two things we saw in summer festivals and two things we saw elsewhere. Enjoy the show. joining me on this very sweaty day. It's so sweaty today. Um, I'm Ben Ferber, theater artist, uh, strange extraordinaire. Just a strange extraordinaire. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm Liz Richards-Krebs, a uh, woman about town. We have a twofer episode today. Yeah, it's a, it's a very weirdly intimate recording. It's the middle of summer. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people went out of town and it's festival time. So right. we got to look at those festivals. Yeah. You know, it is funny to me how, you know, we lost Fringe, what, last summer? Wasn't it two? Two summers ago. And all of these summer festivals have sort of popped up in its place. And I kind of might like them better. I resolutely like them yeah. better. Yeah. <laughs> I feel bad saying that because Fringe is such a, has been such an institution. But I, I think these new festivals that are coming up are really cool and really uh, interesting and curated in a way that Fringe kind of got too big for its britches. <laughs> they do seem to be more thoughtfully curated than Fringe because mm-hmm. Fringe had uh, like a hundred shows. I'm exaggerating, but, no, but not much. Yeah, not by much. <laughs> and these new festivals, they have more of a character to them. Like you can kind of guess like, oh, this show is in this festival, this show is in this festival because they are similar in production quality and... I wouldn't say genre, but I would say types of subject matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so we can start. You want to start with the show that we saw at Ice Factory? Yeah. You know, I want to just get out in front of this and say we have a lot to unpack on this episode. Yeah, I feel like this is going to be kind of a doozy. Yeah. So get excited for us <laughs> to be very, very confused in four extremely different ways. Confused, <laughs> delighted, and confused. Yes, intrigued, bored, (laughs) many different feelings I had during the course of these shows that we saw. So the first show we saw was called The Drinking Bird. Uh, It's an Ice Factory show. Ice Factory, if you don't know, is a festival that runs um, basically a show every week at the New Ohio Theater, which is down on uh, Christopher Street near the Hudson River, um, which is a lovely space, um, and I always love going there. And there are shows basically through August in Ice Factory, so you should check them out and see what's in them this was one of the first shows if not the first show and it is hard to describe so it's by the limited liability theater company co-created by mcfeely sam goodman sarah hughes and lucy kaminsky and what it basically is is it's a lecture but dramatized it's sort of like those old classic Greek theater where someone poses a question and then someone else has the answer. And then, but what about this? Well, it's interesting you say that. So what this show was, was a lecture about essentially socialism, communism to a degree, leftist politics, and uh, why they're good. And why they're good for workers. And it basically takes the form of many questions that are answered that are asked and answered by the ensemble you can tell from listening to it that it's basically framed as a rhetorical question coming from someone who is let's say not a leftist being answered in a very reasoned manner by someone who is a lot of it's about uh labor the value of labor 
the costs and danger of labor. And so what is depicted through various types of choreography and various sort of little vignettes and bits of humorous physical nonsense is people working. So the beginning of the show takes about, I don't know, five or 10 minutes to read one page because uh, a person reads, is given a page after a long Rube Goldberg-esque assembly line of getting them the page. And the page has one or two words on it. And then they have to get the next page. And there is sort of this uh, comically overcomplicated assembly line. Later on, they redo this assembly line when they're talking about uh, mechanization and efficiency. And they actually keep taking someone out of the assembly line until it is one person feverishly running with a piece of paper from one side of the room to the other and handing it to the person reading it. Yeah, it's funny. Both of those sequences that you just described were the parts where I was most interested in what they were saying because the action was illustrating the discussion. But in between those, there are these large sections of question and answer and and very basic dialogue and explanation with literally people sitting around a conference table or standing to the side, or which honestly for me as an audience member totally tuned out. It's difficult because those sections were also the ones which were talking about bullshit jobs as they call them. And how they are jobs where people sit around talking about how to make things more efficient and thus eliminate their job, except that they never eliminate their job. And so they're just sitting and talking. Or they are also doing a streetcar named Desire. Occasionally. I, look, if I could tell you the number of times that's popped up in my office and I'm just in between work and I just, you know, Stella it out. Sometimes you just have to. Yeah. You, someone comes into your office wearing a, uh, what what is John McClane's shirt called? John McClane's shirt. And he's hot, and there's a love triangle, kindness of strangers. Always. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel like the staging simultaneously fell very flat or ran the risk of actually upstaging what they were discussing. Because when the text gets so dense, which it does at many points in this show, my eyes drawn to the action. And when the action is so much more interesting than the text, the text kind of drops out for me. And so it was neat to see the little bits of synchronicity between, you know, like them describing the way a machine functions and then this sort of Rube Goldberg, like you said, going on the background. So those little moments were nice, but I spent half the time saying, why, why am I not just reading this? Why am I not reading this while I'm sitting at my bullshit job? You know? Yeah. I, I would... I mean, I think they sent us the script, but I didn't read it. <laughs> I did. I flipped through it. Yeah. yeah. I, what What is reading it like? It It's like reading an article. I mean, it's broken down into dialogue, but it's as mostly dialogue. Discuss, as we thought it would be. Yeah. Okay. It is mostly dialogue. There's, mm. there's some stage directions in there. I mean, including stage directions that they read once we get to the end of the show. Uh, and it kind of all gets very meta. But I don't know. It, what what they are saying is very interesting, and the discussion is interesting. But this felt like an illustrated article that I didn't need to see. I almost forgot to say this. You, you remember what I said to you when we were walking out? There is a graphic novel that 
in a very similar way to this show, dramatizes the uh, iTunes terms of service. Yes, exactly. And this was very much that. And that, and in that graphic novel, for the people listening who may or not have seen it, first of all, Google it. It's hilarious. But it is dialogue being delivered by people as if it were a comic book, but they are doing various things cursorily related to whatever part of the Apple TOS that they are reading. Yeah, I mean, and that sounds interesting, but I just don't think it sustains my interest I am also not an uh, auditory learner I have to read it I gotta see it so big streams of words coming at me it all kind of glosses yeah I mean this is sort of I mean it's interesting because this is a very very resolutely leftist show but it reminds me of the live reading of the Mueller report yes which is a very discreetly sort of like center left project but it has similar energy in that it is designed to get across information that would be delivered in a dry educational setting. I was going to say it reminded me a little, though I think that the quality of this is much better. It reminded me a little of when you were in school and like the D.A.R.E. program would come to your school. Oh, shit. And they would do little scenes, but the scenes were very educational and sort of flat. And then they would stop and they would discuss it. It, I mean, and I, this is not discounting Drinking Bird because I think that they do it on a much higher, more interesting level. But that's kind of what I felt like. It is. It is. It yeah. Is. I think it's an interesting experiment in how to do theater like this. It's not totally successful, but I actually like here's the thing. I will go see another limited liability theater company show if they do one like this. Yeah, I would definitely be interested. For me, I think it would depend on the topic, but... Mm. I'm definitely interested in what they are doing and enough to go see something again and give them a second shot. Cool. So now moving on to another festival that's running right now, the Corkscrew Theater Festival, which is down on uh, East 4th Street. And we went and saw Pre-Existing Conditions, which honestly, as a build as a rom-com, I mean, at least as far as I understood it, is kind of a different take for a festival. I was saying when we went in, you don't see a lot of straight up rom-coms nowadays it has to be subversive or jaded or it has some sort of conceptual twist to it and this had all those things and this yeah so it's by elise pitak and it is about a dating service a matchmaking service called artemis that matches people with medical history medical issues pre-existing conditions and no health insurance with sort of altruistic tech bros, I guess, who are willing to marry for the health insurance. Sort of how many years ago we got the, well, and today, I suppose, marrying for the green card. So we meet Fyra. So that's a point of contention because everyone says her name Ophira except for her coworker, Casey, Casey. Who calls her Ophira. And I think that's supposed to be a joke that she can't I, pronounce her name See, right. and I I thought it was maybe um, a southern accent thing because Casey does have a little bit of a southern twang. Ophira has a sort of unnamed, undiagnosed pre-existing condition that seems to affect, um, she's very thirsty all the time. She gets headaches and stomach cramps. And most disturbingly, she's just hemorrhaging blood like a lot of the show significant amounts of times and so she has been set up with 
generic nice guy that she doesn't particularly get along with, but they are they are in it for the health insurance. And I love the concept of this because I do think it's something that people think about a lot, especially people our age, um, especially artists our age who don't necessarily have health insurance. And with you know, just the way healthcare <laughs> is in America right now, I kind of liked the idea of this. And Ophira, I, I guess my problem with it, my problem with the show is that Ophira a, is not a particularly likable heroine. Nope. Um, and I think if you're going to do a rom-com, you have to you have to be rooting for the person to find love. And she's not I – mean, I don't mind having an unlikable lead. In fact, I love an unlikable lead. But there was no reason for me for, to root for her to find the success. And then the second half of it is the big plot point is her health issues. And besides a couple of sort of nebulous doctor's appointments where everyone's like, oh, you're fine. And she says, no, I'm not fine. We never get any resolution on that. We don't even get a diagnosis. And I realize that that is realistic. But to make it such a crux of the plot and have it never go anywhere was very frustrating. And to spoil the ending a little bit, but she never gets a diagnosis. And she doesn't end up in a relationship with anybody because we, we of course also get the like the nice guy who's in the background the whole time which is you know kind of a stock character um but she doesn't end up with anybody and she doesn't get her health problems uh, and by a nice guy in the background you mean a simpering simpering whimpering yeah moron. but that's i like, i was like okay well there there's this foil there's the nice guy jerk that she's already with and then the guy who's been there the whole time like that that's how a romantic comedy works. But none of that is really fleshed out enough to uh, to advance anywhere. And I found myself at the end actually rooting more for Casey, the the woman who's her coworker, because Casey then goes into this the matchmaking service and is typed out because she's too old. But she also doesn't have health care. And that was very sad to me. And I wanted to see how that worked. Like, I really wanted her to work something to work out with her. And I thought, God, if I'm rooting for the the sidekick character out of everybody here, I think it's not quite, I don't know if the show's doing what it wanted to do. I don't think it is. I think what's difficult about the, the her not getting a diagnosis aspect is what it was clearly trying to do was to mirror the doctors ignore women with pain issues thing, which is a thing, a capital T thing, which is a huge deal and is only getting worse. But to dramatize it they also gave her symptoms that were clearly not psychosomatic bleeding is never psychosomatic right everyone was just like oh yeah i guess that's a thing that happens to you sometimes i was like hold up yeah for a play that a nosebleed is one thing yeah massive vaginal bleeding which she gets several times in the play is something that her doctors explicitly ignore and while i find the take that the doctors are pretty much ignoring it dystopian i didn't find it credible right i i guess just for so much of this show hinging on healthcare and how important healthcare is i thought it was gonna go somewhere and it just it didn't it all kind of became secondary to the journey of ophira who frankly doesn't grow much at all by the end like it, it she doesn't go anywhere she has a good monologue Basically, to the extent that it, it's if I were better, 
then I wouldn't be so angry all the time. I wouldn't be so sad all the time. And maybe people would like me more. Yes. Um, the, the, the mental and physical and emotional suck of, of a chronic issue, whatever that chronic issue is, was great. I mean, that I thought that was very interesting, but. And I definitely felt like that monologue was the one place where I got beyond the her being kind of unlikable because I got that she was angry all the time because she was in pain all the time. But that was the one time I feel like the play let us in to her actual psyche rather than her projected discomfort. Yeah, I, I wish that we could have gotten a little more of that from her because I think that also would have made her a little more sympathetic and a little more easy to root for because as it is it was the you know when period dramas and someone coughs into a hanky and they cough up blood and it's because they had a child out of wedlock or whatever you know like it's this yeah I felt like they were using her health problems as a manifestation of what she was doing to other people instead of the cause does that make sense absolutely yeah yeah yeah, I guess I, I really liked the concept and the idea behind this show. I just don't think the execution in the script had enough to it. I don't know. Maybe maybe it needed to be longer. I never say that about shows. but God, no. But, but maybe, it, I don't know, it needed a little more development. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's what festivals are for, right? You yeah. do this, you get, your, you, you get to stretch it out a little bit and see where you want to go. The moments that worked the best in this show were the moments where we sort of got into the characters' internal lives. Yes. Which were good moments. This is, and and this this transitions me to something that I wanted to just kind of talk about quickly. Trevor, the tech bro she's dating, in the very first scene, so he's a pretty flat character throughout. Yeah, I mean, I would say that they're all pretty stock. And not, not in a bad way necessarily, but they're just kind of like, Stock romantic comedy characters. The girl, the coworker, best friend, the good guy, the jerk. And he, who's basically the villain of this show, if there really is. I mean, I guess the villain is really the CEO, but um, uh, is Aubrey the CEO. But I feel like he's sort of, we learn that he wants to have a child and that's the only reason he's doing this because like, no, I guess no one will fuck him. <laughs> well, his uh, mother is sick and she's dying and so he wants to get that baby in. Yeah, and... So what it turns out is Artemis is basically just a ground for grounds for guys like that to uh, breed with women, which is super weird. And we learn like, oh, she's being specifically like treated by these company doctors just so she can have a baby and not so she can have anything else happen with her health condition. And first of all, that's really, really fucked up, which like another dystopian bit. But it just it doesn't feel like a motivation that's again realistic for him particularly to do to be such an absolute absolute monster towards her and he is framed as basically an an irredeemable insufferable douchebag throughout even in the first scene which is supposed to be supposed to be a meet cute where we fall in love with him and there are so many clear red flags from the start and one that i personally despise is she's talking about why she's doing artemis which is she wants healthcare, and she also does want to meet someone and he, she asks him, like, why are you doing this? And he says, oh, I'm a democratic socialist. <laughs> and it's like, okay. And then he becomes this sort of one-dimensional parody of Bernie bros, which 
a I find offensive because it's not it's not realistic in terms of the politics of the actual people who are democratic socialists and it is sort of discounting an ideology that in many ways specifically exists to fix the problem that people don't have health insurance yeah I, that actually brings up when I described it now and described it to other people I had a really hard time figuring out why what was in it for Trevor really I mean I get that he wants the baby but what is he getting out of it, it Is it that he's such an overworked tech guy that this is giving him some stability that he doesn't have time to date so now he has this service that'll kind of quick match him up so he doesn't have to mess with all the messy feelings individual part? I I don't know. I mean, we have no idea of his interior life or his life outside uh, making her go on dates with him. Yes. (laughs) And like making her go to the doctor so she can be bred. Yeah, I knew I didn't think about it quite like that, but when you say it like that, gross. <laughs> That's what it felt like to me. Yeah. I guess I, I do like the, dis, the the conceptual dystopia in this play. I don't know if that's fully what they were going for. Yeah, yeah. I think I would like this to be, this idea to be mined a little bit more. Um, but like we were saying, it's a festival. You know, this is maybe the first crack at it. I'd be interested to see where it goes. I really would, like, I would love to see this show revamped and restaged. I mean, what's interesting about Corkscrew as a festival is that it does, it tends to be very early development shows and it is also all self-produced. Basically they give you space and then you got to do a show. You got to have the money. You got to have the, it is that type of festival, not unlike fringe. Um, And so what you see at Corkscrew is generally a little a little scrappier of a production in terms of production values in terms of the development of the piece and so when you're going to corkscrew shows that's kind of the joy is that like oh this is this is a small theater company of theater artists who are really passionate about this show who really want this show to happen because they spend a lot of time and money to do it for like a week yeah and and i will say that i thought the uh design values for something that was being thrown up at a festival were really nice. I thought the costumes, Isabel Nelson, were good. I liked the lighting. Evan Sanderson, I know you probably had six lights to work with. Um, mm-hmm. Nice job. Uh, Elsa Gibson Bryden did the set. I love those big white um, walls. I don't know what you – it was like corrugated wall. It was oh, they, just, were, uh, they were just vertical curtain. Uh, yeah, the, the, the I liked them. I liked curtains. how that worked. So that's very impressive. Nice job, y'all. Next up, uh, we saw No One is Forgotten, which is a new play by Winter Miller in Rattlestick's curated rental program, uh, which is also supported by New George's. And it's written and directed by Winter Miller. What it's about is two, uh, in this case, women, though the script actually is uh, a little more fluid as to their genders. But it's about two women who are in a very small, like 10 by 10 prison cell being held against their will. And they seem to be some sort of political prisoners. We learn about their relationship and sort of how they got there throughout the play, but that is one of the large mysteries of what's going on. And a lot of it is about these two people cramped without sunlight and with barely any food and water, with an inconsistent schedule, with no concept of time, trying to psychologically survive. These characters who are named Lolly and Bang. So these these characters Lolly and Bang. Most of what they are doing is playing games with each other. Um so it sort of starts with with memory games, them trying to guess what feelings they're talking about, what words they're talking about, what people they're talking about and 
this is sort of how they are able to survive. Yeah, it's definitely a sort of modern Beckett. That was the vibe that I was getting. Mm -hmm. There's no sense of time or space, and you're just passing time until you die, uh, which is, I mean, poignant with Beckett, but then especially, I think, in 2019 with the amount of people who are being held in various places for various reasons. Yes. One of the things that I realized, I, I was talking to you about this last night. I realized this after the show. I didn't catch that they were journalists. I thought they were diplomats, but they are journalists specifically. And this show is was written in reaction to the persecution of journalists worldwide. Right. But, you know, I don't know if it matters necessarily what they do or who they are. Yeah. You know, what I really liked about the show is we don't know how long they've been there, but it's been a very long time. And I think it's pretty clear that they didn't do anything wrong to get where they are. Right. And they don't seem to necessarily know even where they are. I'm thinking of when she calls for water and she just shouts it in like different languages. Yes. Whenever, you know, yeah. Oh, yes, yes, They yes. seem pretty disoriented themselves. And so there's no, it's almost like they've reached the end of story in a way, so that we don't learn much about their lives really before they got there. We hear little bits. We get crumbs, and the crumbs are very tantalizing because I spent the entire show sort of wanting to know, who are these people? What's the whole deal going on? Uh, yeah, and it creates, I think, it mimics really well the feeling, I would imagine, of being in isolation, which is any little detail you just seize on. I mean, I feel like we have to say something about the sound design Tyler Kiefer oh it was so good because it's so beautiful and minimal and anytime something happens the tiniest little sound you you perk up instantly and it creates this real kinship with these women in a in a really fascinating way um, yeah. Really and, well done. I mean, I think the production design in general was very good. We only had one qualm about it. Uh, yeah. It, so I've spent a lot of time since we, we both had the same complaint thinking about how I would how I would fix it. And the answer is I don't really have a solution. Well, the answer is don't do it in the round. Right. But I think. Which is done in the round. I think staging it in the round is the best way to do it. I don't really know how else you do it to keep that claustrophobia going but without spoiling anything there are some key when there's so little on stage and so little on stage that's changing if there's a section of the stage that you can't see where key things are happening it's very hard. I mean, so much so that when the show finished, we both immediately went down to the stage because we had to see what was in that one section that we couldn't see that was clearly very important. Yeah. Well, the thing that the thing we couldn't see was there was a slot into which food and water is occasionally and and other things and other things, which is too. that was what was killing me. Yeah. Um. And it's a very a very very integral part. Of the storytelling, um, and it's really cool. And like I could tell that's what it was, but not seeing it 
was another thing that was like a breadcrumb that I was like, oh, I really want this. Yeah, this is another one. Actually, I went back and looked at the script after uh, I got home. I also looked and back I at went, the script. And oh. I, I actually hate doing that. Um, I really, really hate doing that because I feel like a production is meant to be a production. And the right. script is for the people doing it. But I wanted to know more. This was Yeah, this was like a key thing happened. And I went, oh my gosh, if I could have seen that, that would have, not that it would have changed the whole scene for me, it would have informed it. Yes. In, a, in a different way. I think the stakes of this show are just so good. Um, yeah. Because one of the big things that happens, um, and this is, I will say this is a light spoiler, so if you uh, don't want to hear it, maybe go to the time code of the next show in the show notes. There is, so a lot of the play is them uh, doing their own eulogies yeah. for each other and for themselves, um, planning their funerals, basically. And they're pretty optimistic I would say or at least have a front of optimism that at least one of them's going to get out and be able to memorialize the other one or maybe even bury the other one and that feeds so that optimism makes the stakes of them getting out incredibly incredibly high and incredibly engaging and here's the thing that is a slight spoiler there are moments of the show where one of them will disappear or both of them will disappear. Yeah, man, th that first time that happened, my heart just like dropped into my stomach. Yeah, I was very afraid. Yeah. And when they come back, their consequences are also mystifying and very, very engaging. And that really kept me on the edge. Yeah, I mean, I, I really enjoyed this production. I would be interested to see how the dynamic plays out with um, a man and a woman or two men. I think it being two women, I don't know, it just felt like such a such a part of the show. And I think at least, I'm actually, I'm not sure. I think Lolly can maybe be non-binary. I mean, the script's not super prescriptive about it. Right, but yeah, I think that Bang was married to a woman. We know that. And I believe Lolly was married to a man. But I believe that's kind of the only that's indication what we, know. we get. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, so think, I, don't see I guess why maybe not. they could both be non-binary. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I th I think that's interesting, too. It's just with two women this time. So, like, great. Yeah. And it's fine. And it's good. I saw it thinking it had to be two women. And then I looked at the script and I realized it didn't. Yeah. I, w I would be really interested to see how the dynamics change when it is, you know, when when the genders change. And they do have sex. So, like, that's something. Yeah. Yeah, they, like, exactly. like, have onstage sex. A like, lot of a it, couple actually. times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that shared intimacy. It, yeah. I I I I've been thinking about it a lot. I really enjoyed that show. And the only maybe this won't make the cut, but it is the only play I've ever seen in which onstage scissoring seemed at all sexy or practical. <laughs> yeah, uh, I sure. Which I think is down to very good intimacy direction. <laughs> yes, they have a couple of intimacy directors, which is awesome. Uh, Katie Pearl did the. Intimacy and Creative Consulting, and I heard saw another one. Uh, Rokio Mendez. Thank you. I think every play that has anything, any sort of intimacy, should have a an intimacy uh, choreographer. And I don't know. I'm into it. I think I, I like this that we're starting to see them pop up, and I just want to shout them out when we see them. I agree. And I think it is also. I mean, I I would also like to see directors start getting that training and that. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, training is maybe even a hard, a harsh word for it because I think it's mindfulness. Mm -hmm. But 
I do also think it's important to have a voice other than the director who has control over those things because it does keep it um, separate and it keeps it a type of choreography rather than a type of emotional work, which is a lot of what a director's working with. Yeah. I, uh, you know, I just want to see it turn into what we all saw in college, which was, you know, every freshman straight theater boy who decided he was a fight choreographer um, because he took a couple of classes in swords. I, I would like to see intimacy directing become that common and obnoxious. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> if you were an intimacy director and you were listening to this episode, thank you. Thank you. So then once again, totally switching gears out oh, of this God. tiny, beautiful, intimate show to uh, the new Joe Iconis uh, Broadway bounty hunter. I'm just going to say, I I think we have the most to unpack here. Yeah, I, I, I'll we, we got some stuff to talk about. You know, Joe Iconis coming off the the success of Be More Chill and his very strong fan base i don't want to say rabid but kind of rabid uh, i will say rabid yeah They're rabid i mean you know and and be more chill i, I mean i've liked joy Con- i saw when he did blood song of love at ars nova that was the first show of his i saw and i loved it and i've gone to his concerts and you know be more chill was fine it wasn't really for me um it was i will say up front i did not see be more see chill it. right and it, it was not for me Right. I was like, this is just not a show that's leveled at me. And that's fine. Uh, it doesn't really pique my interest. Um, but this is a show that seems aimed at a totally different, not, maybe not a totally different demographic, but where Be More Chill is like the cool college kid musical. This this takes a totally different, yeah, so Be More Chill feels like it's aimed at this young college crowd. And then Broadway Bounty Hunter feels like it's going the totally different direction with a much older cast um, references that are going back to your sort of old Kung Fu Bruce Lee shaft 70s black exploitation much older references well and in terms of the characters in the shows I mean correct me if I'm wrong about the age of the creative team but Be More Chill is Gen Xers writing about Gen Z and Broadway Bounty Hunter is Gen Xers writing about boomers yeah, kind of, sort of. Yeah, I'll, I'll go with that. Both from their own cultural touchstones. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't remember too much about the process of this. I know that, it, that the show's had a few workshops, but I do believe that Joe wrote this around Annie Golden, uh, who is, you know, a musical theater icon, I think, in her own right. Um, I, I don't know if you call her, like, a diva, like you would, like, a Bernadette Peters, because I wouldn't put her in that same... Category maybe because I think she's a little more like scrappy punk rock. She deserves to be a diva, yeah. and she has been underserved. Yes, yes, I will agree with that. And this is—I mean, this is very deliberately trying to be like the Annie Golden should be a superstar. It's a—it's a vehicle. It is a star vehicle, uh, the likes of which you don't normally see off Broadway, and which definitely definitely wants to be on broadway screaming screaming i want to be on broadway this show is see and that's so funny because i don't see it as anything beyond what it is i could see it getting a little more slick moving into a nicer theater but i just i don't know but of course people said about be more chill and then here we are so uh, so it it's this really classic black exploitation type theater that is 
built around Annie Golden, Annie Golden, the character, out of work actress, lost her husband, kind of a sad sack. Uh, and she gets recruited to be a bounty hunter, which then takes her, you know, sort of around the world with a with a shaft-ish sidekick. And it just, it hits, I mean, I'll just say, I grew up watching a lot of those, you know, kung fu movies with my dad. And so it, it hits all the right notes in terms of there's the scene in the whorehouse. There's a long drive. There's a, there's a bunch of cool coats. There's a ragtag band of misfits who are training at a dojo. There's revenge. Like, it hits all They've the- They've got the Kill Bill fight on a monochrome screen with silhouettes. Yeah. Which like, is real good. That was real that good. That was great, yeah. So it, it, it hits all the right references without really- doing anything with them like I love the idea of taking this very masculine trope you know or genre and flipping it by centering you know a quote-unquote woman of a certain age in it but I found myself wanting more I wanted it to be discussed a little bit more. I mean, not, maybe not discussed. You don't need to sit around and talk about it. That's for the drinking bird. But, <laughs> but you know, I wanted to see Andy Golden be more badass. I wanted a little more. Would you dare say be less chill? I did. I wanted her to be less chill. Oh, no. I can't believe I did that. I'm sorry. It's okay. It's my- you made me do it. Can I can I ask a question? Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm asking it rhetorically. What's a bounty hunter? Because this show seems to think that a bounty hunter is some combination of like a John Wick Assassin's Guild member and like Blackwater and a like very stereotyped version of a like martial arts dojo. None of which have anything to do with actual bounty hunting. Well, her her mission, quote unquote, is to go find Mac Roundtree and bring him back. I mean, all any of the bounty hunters in the show do are go across country lines and illegally extradite people back to the United States to be killed. Right. That's what that's what that's literally textually what bounty hunters are in this universe. And I find it very confusing. Oh, also Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Also, they're sort of like the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. They literally have a bow staff, Psy, nunchucks, and a katana on a wall. And I don't think that's intentional, but they do. I hope it was intentional. Because I think that's pretty funny. <laughs> but, so I guess I just, I liked, I liked, the idea of it, much like all these other shows. I like the idea of it a lot. And I would love to see Annie Golden leading a kick-ass fight musical. Do I think that one inspired by Shaft and Kung Fu and written by three white guys is the best way to go about it? I No. This is, the vehicle doesn't really serve her. You know, the best parts of the show to me were when we got Annie on stage by herself singing. When she does that song with the record and has the soul. Like, oh, beautiful. Heartbreaking. And when she gets her big, she gets a couple of solos in the second act. I mean, just gorgeous. When you get to see her doing her thing. And the actor, who's the actor who plays Lazarus? Laz. Alan H. Green. The both of them 
are so charming. They're so absolutely charming and lovable throughout at all times. Yes, yes. And again, like, two great people to build a story around that don't normally get this type of story. They get a love story. I mean, God. It's and, so- like, a pretty good one. Yes, I love, I thought that was so sweet. They got the meat cute. They, like, don't like it. Well, like, he doesn't like her at all. It's, it's the, you know, that's my new partner. I can't work with them. And then they fall in love. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to just, I'm just going to break the glass. I'm breaking the glass. So this is a show by three white men. Um, at least two of whom are married to women. Not going to define sexualities. So I'm not going to say straight white men, but I'm going to say white men. Um, with a mostly POC cast in which there's a lot of stereotyping. And see, this is kind of going back to what I was saying about, I grew up with watching these movies and these guys are hitting all the stereotypes in those movies. And I don't think you could do a show in this style and not hit on those stereotypes, but for them to just do them, Instead of... Without commenting on the middle. Exactly. You can't just do it without having commentary on it. I, and I would say that regardless of who is writing it. I think you cannot throw some of these stereotypes up on a stage without commenting in some way. The, the closest they come is when they go to the, the House of Hoes and Annie unionizes the sex workers, which I thought was wonderful yes they used that the word was a sex worker bit. twice and very clearly as like a, a like backpedaling of like we have said a lot of really awful things about sex workers in this show and maybe people are going to get angry at us for it but we're still going to stereotype them <laughs> and we're going to make them unionizing a punchline rather than something at all meaningful yeah and it's there's also a, a last minute i think it may be the same discussion where they talk about um unionizing the sex workers where annie just says and that's feminism and i was like wait what's feminism oh i remember this line and internally my brain t- tied itself into a knot and then i almost screamed what out loud I, yeah what you don't just get to similarly to all the stereotypes you don't just say it's feminism and then you go but wait wait no you have to do something and then she punches a woman in the face yeah it's just there's also just like in the whorehouse scene there is um and this is i think it's pretty clearly unintentional but they really needed to fix the choreography there is a trans panic joke because uh there are two women actors who appear in like lingerie and then a man appears in lingerie and a wig and the entire audience roars with laughter, which, come on, we're past that, y'all. I mean, it's actually not funny. I I don't know if that is the fault of the writing or the fault of the audience, to it's be very honest. It's the fault of the audience, because but I, I think, think it's that... the fault of the direction. Because mm. I think a director who was aware that that's what the joke is being interpreted as by the audience would then say, okay, we're not going to have them come out one, two, three. We're going to have them come out all at the same time. Hmm. That's how you okay. fix that. So I, I don't know. There was also, sorry, I keep harping on this. There was also a very good line that could have been better. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So there's a line in the second act. The head of the bounty hunting dojo, which is not a thing. The head of the bounty hunting dojo is an Asian woman. 
And she says, commenting on another character, it's very hard for an Asian person to get a role in a musical. And everyone cheers. And the thing that I heard screaming in my head was, and when they do, it's very often stereotyped, like yeah. her character and like was. that's, I think they thought that that was covering for what they did, which was basically an actress entering to chopsticks at one point. I mean, that's like three points. Yeah, but it just it needed it. It wasn't it wasn't effective. Something that was kind of weird about the show to me, and I'm actually just going to say this out loud because I haven't fully processed it yet. They say the word the the racial word, word white a lot of times like they call Annie Golden white a lot of times and they never really acknowledge anyone else's races which I think is like I just found it kind of strange see and I just took it as sort of the the stereotype again in these movies of the the white devil the white you know the the, the white villain but I don't know. Maybe that's the most that they felt comfortable commenting on as a bunch of white guys. Yeah. Well, maybe don't do a show. <laughs> Look, Joe's going to be fine. I will be really interested to hear what people's responses are to this show. Uh, not just because of everything that we have discussed here, but there's also um, a big chunk that we didn't even get into that seems to be trying to parody Be More Chill and doesn't... <laughs> no, we have to talk about this. We have to talk about oh, this. Oh, no, 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 no. I want to save it as a surprise. Um, it, there's like a whole other subplot about a producer giving Broadway kids drugs that looks like a five-hour energy shot um, but acts like cocaine. And you see a number from Young People the Musical and there's a character on stage that I'm pretty sure is wearing a Christine Reject costume from Be More Chill. Um I don't know. I, I wanted to like that. I wanted to like it. I wanted to be like, oh, Joe's in on the joke. Well, it, it, they are parodying themselves quite. without being in on the joke. Yeah, that's it. It, it. it like didn't quite land. I mean, the joke is, without spoiling much, the joke is, ha ha, we're doing a show about kids. Ha ha, we're kind of out of touch without really understanding like, yeah, that's yeah. not a joke. That's just something that people commented on many times about that show yeah because joe early he really is writing this wave right now and i think is and and deservedly so i think that he is a very talented um musician yes um i said it before would be more chill i don't think i care for his book writing um which kind of comes across here though he's one of three uh book writers here with uh, lance rubin and jason sweet tooth williams so I don't know. I will I will be interested to see what the the general response is to this show. I wonder if it's going to be one of those shows where people are afraid to say anything they don't like about it. It's possible. I mean, and, and I think Annie Golden carries it really far. I think she mm-hmm. she is the reason to go see this show, for sure. But then come back to us with all of your questions. And if anyone with the power to do this is listening, please please put Annie Golden and John Wick for. Yeah. There we go. I would 100% see that. Oh, she would be so good as a John Wick character. Yes. She like, she she can do it. Man. I mean, like, this character would be good as a John That's Wick what character. Saying, like, <laughs> this character for her, fantastic. I have some questions about the writing around it, but, man, she's great. You know, every 
theater in joke they make is very funny. Yes. And these are people who know the industry and know the jokes and know the history as well. Um, God, there was a Manny Patankin joke that I loved. And I mean, a lot of it is very masturbatory, but in a way that like everyone's in on it. And so it's fun. Yeah. Look, if you're going to go, if you're going to the Greenwich House Theater to see a new musical, like you're in on the joke. Most yeah. likely. I'm, I'm never going to not call it the Barrister Theater. <laughs> I know. That's why I had to go over here and look at the title. I was like, what was it? What is it called now? Um, yeah. Well, so Ben, where do we go from here? Oh, do we want to talk about the fact that Annie Golden's not in an eight shows a week? Oh, yeah. That's, that's interesting. I do think that's very interesting. So Anne L. Nathan um, is in the show one time a week in Annie Golden's role, I guess, playing Annie Golden. It says... So her character in the playbill says Anne instead of Annie, and oh, she is Anne Nathan. And I know that they changed the poster and the media for her, um, you know, and she's been in different shows than Annie Golden, and, the, and Annie Golden's resume has dropped a lot in this show. Um, I, I would be really interested to see how that works with her. I mean, she's a very talented actress in her own right. Um, but just like full lyrics but she's clearly not playing Annie Golden. she's clearly not playing Annie Golden um she's playing Anne Nathan I assume so I, that's interesting to me that's very cool I like that I don't know it was a it was a soul-sucking couple of weeks yeah I mean there's are shows that you know I enjoyed stuff I enjoyed parts of all of these shows but oh, it was kind of disheartening to just keep walking out of a show going oh I really wanted that to be better. Yeah. Over and over. Well, and we we walked out of all four of these shows. And all four times we said, lot to unpack. Yeah. <laughs> and here we are, unpacking. I think we've unpacked it. I think the suitcase is unpacked. Yeah. I, I would love people to unpack with us on uh, on Twitter, wherever, and uh, talk to us. Talk to us about these shows. I would really, I'm really interested to hear other people's opinions um, on all of these, actually. But I don't know how many people saw the pre-existing conditions and um drinking bird which have closed but no one has forgotten is out till the 27th and i am not sure probably bounty hunter uh, has just opened so we got you probably got some time for that one too i mean we're releasing this episode when the other reviews are coming out so yeah. that's cool yeah that never happens that never happens what are you looking forward to and i'm gonna go, i'm going out of town a bunch so i i got i have no shows um i haven't even been keeping up with what's coming out right now to be honest how about you um i'm seeing a bunch of other stuff in ice factory and corkscrew um i'm excited for collective noun um you know i'm seeing the heresy machine um oh, yeah. at here so i'm excited for that that like alan turing like part like dance pete yeah. yeah yeah so that's gonna be cool yeah yeah a bunch of ice factory i think i'm seeing everything in ice factory which oh, maybe cool. i'm crazy good for you yeah, no, that's good that's some good stuff so yeah Check out, check out Ice Factory. Check out Corkscrew. Many good things. Yeah. Well, thanks, Ben. Yeah, thanks, Liz. Bye-bye. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining us for today's episode of the Maximu Theater and Performance Podcast. If you have questions, comments, or opinions that differ from ours, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter at Maximu. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And we have merch. You can buy coffee mugs, tote bags, and stickers with your favorite Maximu-isms on them. You can get to the store via Maximu.com. All proceeds go to helping the podcast improve our sound quality. See you next time.